Oh. Well, good morning. <laughs> this morning, I am humbled to bring to you the word of God that was shared by Christ's devoted laborer, um, Nancy Lee DeMoss. Nancy Lee DeMoss spoke um, this sermon at a Campus Crusade for Christ gathering in 1995. I was initially skeptical when my mom wanted to show me this hour-long sermon from the 90s. I think the uh, popular hairstyle from the 90s threw me off a little bit. <laughs> but probably more honestly was that in the pride of my own heart, I wasn't sure that I wanted to hear an hour's long sermon of God's voice. But though my heart was initially hardened, by God's grace, it did not stay that way. And this morning, I'm only going to share just a small snippet of the sermon with you. But in that small snippet, I pray that God pierces your hearts like he did mine. So please pray with me. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. Open our ears that we may hear you and obey Soften our hearts, and may your spirit work in us for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We need, desire, long for, and ache for that fresh, continuing visitation of the Spirit of God. And I felt directed by the Lord this morning to touch on one of the most crucial ingredients of experiencing that visitation of the Spirit of God, not just this morning, but in an ongoing way in the days ahead. So we ask the question, what kind of heart does God revive? And what does it take in my heart to experience ongoing, continual revival? Listen, if you would, to these scriptures, and I think the answer will become plain. For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the heart of the humble and to revive the spirit of the contrite ones. The Lord is close to those that are of a broken heart and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You do not take delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, this you will not despise. And then the Lord says, To this man will I look, to he who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. Then we hear the words of the Lord Jesus, blessed, happy to be envied, are those who are poor in spirit, the humble, those who rate themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy to be envied, are those who mourn, for they, those who mourn over their sin, those who grieve over that which grieves the heart of God, they will receive the comfort that only God can give. As we hear those verses and think of many others like them in the scriptures, what is the kind of heart that God revives? 
The heart that God revives is the broken, the contrite, the humble heart. We are tempted to think of revival as primarily a time of joy and blessing and fullness and abundance and excitement and enthusiasm and wonder and overflowing abundance. And so at the right time it will be. We want a painless revival. We want, so to speak, a laughing revival. But the ways of God are that the way up is down. And we are reminded by one of the leaders of the revival in Borneo in 1973 that revivals do not begin happily with everybody having a good time. They start with a broken and a contrite heart. You see, we will never meet God in revival until we have first met with him in brokenness. The epistle of James reminds us and calls us to draw near to the heart of God, and he will draw near to you. But there's a process first. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and then he will lift you up. Now, there are some here who might be discouraged that God has called us to brokenness. But I believe that is perhaps because we have some misconceptions about what brokenness really is. You see, our idea of brokenness and God's idea of brokenness might be two different things. We tend to think of brokenness, for example, as being sad or gloomy, never smiling, never laughing, or as being morbidly introspective, always trying to dig up some new sin to confess. Some have the image of brokenness as a sort of false humility where we're continually putting ourselves down. For some, the word brokenness conjures up images of deeply emotional experiences and the shedding of many tears. But I want to say this morning that there may be many tears without brokenness, as there may be in some cases genuine brokenness apart from the shedding of tears. There are those who equate brokenness with deeply hurtful circumstances in their lives. But I would say again that it is possible to have experienced deep hurts and tragedies, and yet never to have experienced genuine brokenness. You see, brokenness is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It is a choice that I make. It is an act of my will And brokenness is not primarily a one-time experience or a crisis experience in my life, though there may be those. Brokenness is rather a continuous, ongoing lifestyle. It is a lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart and my life as he alone can see it. It's a lifestyle of unconditional, absolute surrender to the will of my Father. Even as the horse that has been broken is surrendered and sensitive to the wishes of its rider, so brokenness is a lifestyle of saying, yes, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Brokenness is the shattering of my self-will so that the life, the spirit, the fragrance, the light of Jesus may be released through me. Brokenness is a lifestyle of responding in humility and obedience to the conviction of God's word. And as his conviction is continuous, so my brokenness must be continual. 
Brokenness is a lifestyle that takes me in two directions. It's a lifestyle of living vertically, so to speak, with the roof off in my relationship toward God as I walk in the light and transparent honesty and humility before him. But it's also a lifestyle that requires also that I live with the walls down in my relationships toward others. There are some wonderful illustrations in the scripture of broken people. And frequently, those illustrations are set in contrast to the lives of those who were not broken. Think, for example, of two Old Testament kings who sat on the same throne. One committed egregious sins against the heart of God. He committed adultery. He lied, committed murder to cover up his sin, and then lived for an extended period of time in covering up his treacherous, traitorous sin against God and against his nation. And yet in the scripture, we are told that King David was a man after God's own heart. Then we think of the king who preceded him, King Saul, whose sin by comparison as we would measure it does not begin to be as great as that of King David. All that Saul was guilty of from the seeing of the eye was incomplete obedience. And yet in response to his sin, he lost his kingdom, his family was destroyed, and he came under the wrath and the judgment of God. Why the difference? Both men were confronted by prophets over their sin, and both men said verbally, I have sinned. But you see, when King Saul confessed his sin, his confession was in the context of blaming the people, defending himself, making excuses, rationalizing, justifying himself, and he revealed the true condition of his heart when in the same breath as saying, I have sinned, he said, please don't tell the people. He covered up. Whereas King David, when confronted with his sin, fell on his face before God in confession, and the evidence of that broken and contrite heart was that he penned for all the world to see those psalms of contrition that we have in our scriptures today. You see, a broken person doesn't care who knows God was not as concerned about the nature of the sin itself as he was about the heart attitude and response of these men when confronted with their sin. Then the Gospel of Luke gives us three wonderful illustrations of the contrast between a broken person and a proud, unbroken person. You remember the parable that Jesus told, and the scripture tells us that he told this parable to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And he told about two men who came into the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee. And as he stood to pray, the scripture said that he prayed to himself. And his prayer consisted of looking around at all the other adulterers and the thieves and the murderers, and then at this lowly tax collector by his side. And he prayed, oh God, I thank you that I compare favorably to all these other sinners that I know. You see, proud people compare themselves to others. So he justified himself. He protested his own innocence and there by his side was a lowly, despised tax collector who could not even lift his eyes to heaven. But in the presence of the holiness of God, he smote his breast and said, O oh God, 
the only thing that I can ask for is for you to have mercy, for I am a sinner. You see, he refused to justify himself. Rather, he justified God. In Luke chapter 7, we read the story of Jesus being invited to dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, Scripture tells us that there was a woman who had lived in a sinful lifestyle in this town, and apparently it was widely known. Now, when she heard that Jesus had come to the home of Simon the Pharisee um, for dinner, she came into that home presumably uninvited, bearing with her an alabaster box of perfume. She went immediately to the feet of Jesus as he lay there reclining at dinner. Scripture said she stood behind him at his feet. You'll notice that everything that this sinner woman did was at the feet of Jesus. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. A picture, I believe, of the brokenness and the repentance of her heart before she even came into that place. And then as her tears began to fall on the feet of Jesus, she lowered herself to wipe the tears off of his feet with her hair. A picture, I believe, of the forgiveness that she had experienced as Jesus had wiped her sinful heart clean. And then in the freedom of her heart, regardless of what anyone else in the room thought, she lowered herself even further to kiss the feet of Jesus, to worship him, to love him, And then she took that alabaster jar and poured the perfume, the ointment, on the feet of Jesus as if she were oblivious to everyone else in the room. All that mattered to her was Jesus. And she cast herself in a broken, contrite spirit before him. Now Simon the Pharisee is a picture to us of a proud, unbroken man who was incensed by all of this and said within himself, if this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Well, not only did Jesus know what kind of a woman she was, but he also knew what kind of a sinner he was. And so Jesus spoke to him, you remember, and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus told the story of two men who owned a money lender amounts of money. One owed an extravagant amount and the other just a paltry amount, but neither of them had anything to pay, so the moneylender forgave them both their debts. And Jesus said to Simon, now which one will love this man more? I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled, said Simon. Jesus said, you understand that correctly, but there's something that you have not understood about me. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, just a common courtesy. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you did not give me a kiss, a handshake of greeting. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Do you suppose that Simon had any less to be forgiven than did this woman of the street? I think not. 
They were both sinners. The only difference was that she knew she was. And Simon, in the blindness and pride of his heart, could not see himself to be a needy sinner. One more illustration in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Jesus gave three parables, and we're told in the first verse who was in his audience. There were two groups of people in that audience. There were the tax collectors and the sinners, and we're told that they came to hear Jesus. They eagerly hung on his every word. They needed him, and they knew they needed him. There was also another group over on the sidelines, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, and they were doing their typical ordinary thing. They were muttering and murmuring to themselves and criticizing. Can you believe that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Aren't you glad? So Jesus told three parables, speaking to the two segments of his audience. And I would say that in this audience today, that every one of us in our hearts falls into one of these two categories. He spoke first of the lost sheep, and then of the lost coin, and then of the lost son. He told of the two brothers, and how the younger of them, with a proud, rebellious, stubborn, wayward heart, took his share of the inheritance and went off into a far land where he wasted it all in riotous living. But after he had spent everything, he began to be in need. It's often our need that leads us to the pathway of brokenness and repentance. And finally, having no more resources of his own, having tried everything possible to make himself a living, now destitute and poverty-stricken, the scripture says that this young man became broken. And in his brokenness, it says that he came to his senses. He came to himself. He became honest in his true condition. He said, I will arise. I will go to my father. This is a step of repentance, turning from going my own way and turning toward the way of the Father. He's determined to make appropriate confession. I will say to my Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And then he's determined to say to his Father, though his Father never gave him the chance to say the words, I am not worthy to be your son. Just let me be one of your hired servants. You see, that's the heart attitude of the broken one, the humble person. It's the heart of, I am not worthy to be, that you should extend your grace to me, O God. Just let me be one of your hired servants. And you know how the father welcomed the son, embraced him. The father heart of God reaches out to Long for, I will pause while this is now shut off. Thank you. Let's try this. Can you hear me? Oh, man, we're just getting to the exciting part, too. And you know how the father welcomed the son, embraced him. The father heart of God reaches out to, longs for, and embraces brokenhearted sinners. Put the best cloak on him, the sandals, the ring. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. I think, however, we're not as familiar with the latter half of the story. There was another brother, the elder brother. 
And the scripture tells us in the 25th verse of Luke chapter 15 that the older son, meanwhile, was out in the field. He was the good boy. He was out there doing what he was supposed to do, being faithful, working hard. He'd never been wayward. He'd never been rebellious outwardly. He was faithful and hardworking. And could I say, by the way, that just out of my own heart and walk with the Lord and pilgrimage with him, that years of tenure and a hidden desire for recognition and unfulfilled expectations can set us up to become 21st century Pharisees. Here is this faithful, hardworking son out in the field, and he comes near the house, and he hears music and dancing. And rather than go to the source to find out what's really happening, he instead goes to a servant and says, what's happening? And the servant tells him the facts, but not the truth. You see, broke, or proud people do not want the truth. The servant said, your rotten brothers come home, and your father's got a party going for him. He didn't say... Your brother, you remember how he left so high and mighty and haughty? He's come back, but he's not the same person. He's broken. He's humble. He's repented. He hadn't had a good meal in ages. He's at the end of everything, but his heart is broken, and your father's forgiven him, and it's time to celebrate. The elder brother heard that the younger brother had come home, and he couldn't rejoice in the brother's return. The father, hearing of the anger of the older brother, left the party. And I'm told that in a Jewish community, in a Jewish family, that when the father left, that the party had to stop while he went out to deal with the proud, unbroken elder brother. And isn't that like so many of our ministries and churches and fellowships today? There's no celebrations going on, no joy, because we're having to deal with all the proud, unbroken, angry, resentful, ripped-off people. As I look at this elder brother, I'm reminded that the higher up that we go in terms of influence and leadership and responsibility and faithfulness of service, the easier that it is to become proud and blinded to the real condition of our hearts, to become self-deceived, to think that we don't need to be broken, And it becomes more difficult for us to be broken, for after all, we have more to lose in terms of our reputation. Well, as we think about these different comparisons, let me ask you, which ones do you identify with? Do you find yourself identifying with proud King Saul, with the Pharisees, with Simon, with the elder brother? Or do you find yourself identifying with adulterous King David? the broken, sinful tax collector, the sinner woman, the prodigal son? Or do you say, well, I don't think of myself as those people? You see, in each of these comparisons, both parties had sinned. The only difference was in their response to that sin. Whether they were proud and unbroken or humbled and broken before God, aware of their sin. Church family, as we begin this season of Lent, we get to learn together what it looks like to live a lifestyle 
of brokenness. Not just a moment of confession on Sunday morning, but a lifestyle of seeing ourselves in the light of our holy God, prostrate before him, grieved at the state of our hearts. It is only with that perspective that you and I can truly experience the overwhelming grace that Jesus gave to us. This morning, I invite you to spend the next few moments in silent prayer, next few minutes in silent prayer. Listen to your Savior. Worship him. Adore him. Make your hearts vulnerable before your King. Please join me in prayer, continuing this.